You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. The United States and China seem to be on a collision course for dominance of the international order. Can we avoid military conflict or is war inevitable? In today's episode, FSI hosts a conversation between Graham Allison, director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard, and Neil Ferguson, a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and at Harvard's Center for European Studies. Dr. Allison served as Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration and received the Defense Department's highest civilian award, the Defense Medal for Distinguished Public Service. He also served as the Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government from 1977 to 1989. His new book is titled Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? Dr. Ferguson opens the conversation. Indeed, the the book that we're going to talk about is a book that I watched uh, evolve while I was at Harvard. And uh, I have to congratulate you, Graham. You got the timing just right. Uh, And if you aren't worried now about the possibility of conflict between China and the United States, when you leave this room, I guarantee that you will be. Uh, Let me begin our conversation with a quotation from the book. When a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, alarm bells should sound. Danger ahead. China and the United States are currently on a collision course for war unless both parties take difficult and painful actions to avert it. And war between the United States and China in the decades ahead is not just possible, but much more likely than currently recognized. Indeed, on the historical record, war is more likely than not. Graham, I've got to ask you to set out your your case, assuming that most people in the room have bought the book but not yet read it. (laughs) Persuade us that war is more likely than not between the United States and China. Okay, thank you very much, Neil, and thank you for... uh, uh, participating in this event and thank Amy and everybody here for uh, organizing and especially Amy and the joint venture with uh, Hoover and it's a great honor and opportunity for me to be here at Stanford. I did actually spend one uh, very happy year at the Center for Advanced Studies uh, uh, back I think in the early 70s and I thought I couldn't possibly come here because I wouldn't be able to do any work. It's too nice. There's too many uh, other other things to do. And I remember when Ken Arrow, who was a colleague at Harvard, came out here, I said to him, well, how do you get any work done? And he says, well, actually, I spend as much time in the sun as I used to spend shoveling snow. <laughs> so uh, uh, in any case, a great pleasure to be here. Th- and th- thanks for the introduction. So. Uh, Uh, Not for this group, but for general uh, audiences, and especially for younger audiences today, the concept that there could be a war between great powers is just inconceivable. I mean, seven decades without war, as uh, uh, students at Harvard often tell me, uh, the war between great powers has been consigned to the dustbin of history. So it's not anything to do with the 20th century. It's like for previous centuries. So there just can't be wars between great powers anymore because there haven't been for a long time. And anybody with any historical sensibility will recognize how silly that observation is. 
this period of seven decades is historically anomalous. Uh, John Geddes's proposition about the long peace is, I think, a powerful proposition. So the notion that the, a peace is either a natural condition of mankind or that for whatever reason we've now, our better angels have become so powerful or we've become so wise or, in any case, war between great powers is obsolete. I don't believe it for a second. So that's the premise. Now, in the case of US and China, I think uh, uh, every day there's noise and news about what's happening in this relationship. Either North Korea is testing some missiles or China becomes the number one trading partner of Germany or there's a near collision in the South China Sea or whatever. Uh, is there some way to look beneath the surface of this daily noise and news to, to, to see something of the structure or even substructure of what's driving these events? And I came upon the idea uh, that Thucydides had had a great insight and that that insight basically helped illuminate what's happening today in the relationship with the US and China. Namely, a rising power is on a course and is threatening to displace a ruling power. Now, that storyline is as old as history itself. So Thucydides, the founder of history as we know it, uh, said about the conflict between Athens and Sparta, the two great city-states of classical Greece, in this famous line that all students of international relations have studied, he said, quote, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made the war inevitable. So uh, he identified a dynamic, a Thucydidean dynamic, in which a rising power feels bigger, stronger, thinks, well, okay, my interests deserve a little more weight. Uh, the current arrangements, which were set in place before I was bigger and stronger, are confining, even unfair. Maybe even I can remember some abuses. And the ruling power, looking at this, thinks this upstart is trying to upset the, real, the situation that's actually provided the environment in which it's able to grow. That's the only reason it became bigger and stronger, because I was helping provide an environment for it. So this dynamic between the rising power and the ruling power greatly, greatly uh, it exhausts trust. So every action of one party is misinterpreted by the others. If I try to be benign, you suspect I have an ulterior motive and vice versa. So magnification of misunderstandings and similarly creates a great vulnerability to the impact of external actions or events in which something happens and then one thing triggers a reaction and then there's a cascade at the end of which is an outcome that nobody would have imagined. So the dynamic here is not that in the rising ruling power relationship one party decides war is a good idea. That's not the proposition. The proposition is rather I think the current arrangements are great because they've provided a long period of peace, they've allowed you to grow rich and uh, as we, as an American government official from time to time, I've given this speech to people. I believe it's true. The U.S. constructed in the aftermath of World War II an, an economic and security order which has provided for longer peace and greater prosperity than China ever saw in its whole 5,000 years. So they should be extremely grateful. And they should actually participate in this international rule-based order. That's what we tell them. And they say, who wrote these rules? 
And where were we when the rules were written? And are the rules fair from our perspective? And shouldn't they be adjusted? Maybe I should have more say. I should have more sway. And we say, sit in your place. You should be happy. You should be grateful. So this dynamic leads us then to be vulnerable to events like what's happening in Korea. If what was happening in Korea was happening in a relationship between the US and Britain, so let's imagine Ireland was becoming obstreperous in a way that was threatening to the two parties. The British and the Americans would sit down and say, a little pipsqueak like this cannot disturb relations between two big states. No, forget about it. Let's just sit down, solve this problem, and if we can't agree on some things, we'll flip a coin. But in any case, we can find a way to work this problem. In the relationship between the US and China, as we watch what happens in North Korea, the Chinese actually, as, as you know very well, Neil, haven't participated in this conversation you and I did. We were both part of a, a very high-level track two post-mortem on Mary Lago with both Americans and Chinese who had been present at the meeting. From a Chinese perspective in Beijing, the problem in Korea is only that we're there. There would be no problem in Korea if the Americans were not in Korea. We would solve this problem in a second. And from the American perspective, the idea that, wait a minute, we don't belong there. Excuse me, we fought a war there. 40,000 Americans died there. We helped build a society there. It's a very successful democracy. It's the 13th largest market economy in the world. So we're not walking away from that and saying, adios, thank you very much. Uh, we're proud of this, and we should be proud of it. We have a defense relationship. We do, we should. So you say, well, so the problem is you, North China, you should solve this problem with these little guys that are your guys. They're your ally. They're the one that's creating the problem. So I think the, the uh, uh, as you've written, uh, Neil, uh, I think brilliantly about World War I, if you go back and ask about World War I, I have a good chapter in the book, I think, it's, if, if you're just doing it in single chapter terms, I do not believe you can study World War I too much. It's totally dumbfounding. I think that Bateman's answer after the war when people said, well, how did this happen? And he said, ah, if we only knew. Still is the right answer. So how could the assassination of an archduke in Sarajevo by a Serbian terrorist? So the archduke, nobody really cares much about except the, the guy in Vienna. In Sarajevo, they told him he shouldn't go there. Okay? The guy that assassinates him is a Serbian terrorist from a group called the Black Hand. Again, if you're writing a movie, you wouldn't make this up. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the spark that creates a fire that burns down the whole house of Europe. It's crazy. I mean, it makes no sense. Did anybody want the war that they got? No. The, the Austro-Hungarians would like to have had to smush the Serbs because of the way they were behaving. But actually, Gray's plan, as you pointed out, would have allowed him to do that without having a great war. But what happened was one thing led to the other, and by the end, everybody had lost the thing they cared about most. In fact, just if I do one more second on, the, on it, I think, because I do think it's so startling, and I think it's so relevant as we try to think about China and the US. There's nobody in the US who wants a war with China. And any, I don't know of a single person at defense who doesn't think that would be crazy. And I think there's no one in the Chinese Ministry of Defense that thinks a war with the U.S. is a good idea. I think they understand war would be catastrophic. But uh, in the end of World War I, what had happened to what each of the parties cared most about? It was gone. The Austro-Hungarians were trying to hold together empire, and it dissolved. The emperor had gone. 
The Russian czar was backing the Serbs. His whole regime has been overthrown by the Bolsheviks, the communists. The Kaiser is trying to back his buddy in Vienna. He's gone. The French are backing the Russians. They've been bled of their youth for a whole generation. The society never recovers. And, and, and Britain, which has been a great creditor nation for 100 years, is turned into a debtor and is on a path to decline. So if you'd given these people a chance for a do-over, nobody, no, not, not a single one would have made the choices that he did, but they made the choices. One thing led to the other, and God knows that's what happened. So I think a, a situation which nobody wants war, the war that you get, in which everybody knows war would be nuts, doesn't mean war can't happen. Yeah. And your analogy here would be the rivalry between Britain and Germany, which many historians have seen as central to the outbreak of that war. Right. Uh, in this case, Britain in 1914 was the incumbent power, uh, as the United States right. is today. Uh, Germany was the rising power, as China is today. They were both heavily interdependent economically, right. and nevertheless, conflict uh, came with disastrous consequences. Right, and they had both become, because of this Thucydide and rivalry, in my reading of it, and I think it's consistent with your own history of it, they had each then become entangled with other parties about whom they would not otherwise have been so entangled. So, the, for, for if it had been Bismarck in, in, uh, in Germany, he would have understood exactly how weak the Austro-Hungarians were, and not about to let them drag him into something. Actually, he would have never let the alliance with Russia lapse. But you got a Kaiser who didn't know what he was doing, trying to run the German hand, and they begin to make these mistakes. Similarly, in the British case, the British had been very careful for 400 years not to get too entangled with any one of the other parties on the uh, continent. So they were watching their... But, Fearful of Germany, they had succumbed to, well, okay, I guess we better talk to the French more about this. I guess maybe we should have more relationships with the Russians, even though the Brits were very worried about the Russians, as you wrote, because they thought the Russians were threatening their empire in India. So in, in the book, uh, I should explain, uh, Graham actually gives you 16 cases of uh, an incumbent power uh, feeling threatened by a rising power and makes, uh, and this is the political science part, the argument in 12 out of 16, this results in conflict. Uh, so I'd like to talk more in a minute about that 1914 analogy, which I think is a very powerful one. Um, and, and then I'd like to get onto the, the contemporary parallel in which sort of small rogue regime, Serbia 1914, North Korea today ends up precipitating conflict. Before we get there, can we talk a bit about Thucydides? Uh, it's worth pointing out to this audience that you may not have read the Peloponnesian War and you may not have read Thucydides, but China's leaders sure have. Just out of interest, could you raise your hand if you've read the Peloponnesian War, all or part of it? Oh, oh, very good. It's almost like being back at Oxford. Uh, let me make a, a, a shout-out to apologies to name because I, I like this very much. You can go right now, when you're done, or even now, and download for free onto your, onto your uh, Kindle or uh, Thucydides' Peloponnesian War. And only read, just read the first hundred pages, book one, and it'll knock your socks off. I'm guaranteeing, knock your socks off. For free, yeah. So I hope you like the other book too, which you have to pay for. But. 
It's not downloadable for free yet, but I'm sure somebody's working on it, Graham. Watch out. Uh, so, so let's just briefly talk about Thucydides. One of the most remarkable things for me is that this has become something that China's leaders refer to. Uh, Xi Jinping himself referred to the Thucydides trap in a speech, uh, I think it was in Seattle, remind me Ooh. if I've got that wrong. And we heard uh, uh, just the other day the Chinese ambassador in the United States refer to it too. So it may seem arcane if you're not uh, into ancient history, it doesn't seem arcane uh, in Beijing, that's for sure. Um, just one question on that. Who is Sparta and who's Athens in this analogy? Because I'm not quite sure. Well, as, as, I think that the, this is certainly not isomorphic. So it's not like this is exactly like that. And actually, as our mutual colleague and the founder, we think of the work that Neil and I have tried to do together on applied history, uh, Ernest May would point out to us, when you get attracted to an analogy, be careful. Uh, always take a page, a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of the page and write similar at the top of one column and different at the top of the other column. And if you can't make three bullet points under each, take an aspirin and consult a historian. <laughs> so these are not exactly like. In fact, the, uh, in the, the Spartan case, as uh, you know, Neil, very well, and people may not remember, Sparta had been the ruler of Greece for 100 years. So that was the normal circumstance. The Persians had come and there was a big war with the Persians. That's what we call Iranians now. And Athens had built a fleet, actually the first professional navy. So their navy, the people were professional. They worked all the time. Whereas other guys just rode, were soldiers who rode. And lo and behold, if you're a professional, you can do a little bit better than you know a pickup game. So they produced a pretty impressive navy, and then they actually had created an alliance structure. Together, Athens and Sparta then defeated the, the Persians. Whereupon, there was this, uh, something that's happened, so it's happened a few other times in history, uh, but there was this explosion of creative energy in Athens, just unbelievable. Uh, so uh, what did the Athenians invent? I was just came from an event that, uh, in Silicon Valley with the uh, uh, you know, people in the tech world. And I said, you know, you get to think you're reinventing the world. What did these guys invent in 50 years? Okay, they invented uh, drama. So Sophocles, Aristophanes, Euripides, uh, history, uh, Thucydides, uh, Herodotus, philosophy, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, uh, democracy, uh, Pericles, architecture. Look at the Parthenon. You can find a better building in, in California than, excuse me. This was, so from Sparta, people are looking out saying, these people are totally out of control. Every day they get up and they invent crazy new things that don't seem very comfortable to us. Sparta was a, was a, uh, was a martial society. It was essentially a, uh, imagine SEAL Team 6 <laughs> is your whole society. So. When kids are four years old, you check them out. If they don't have any prospect, you put them in one lane, the other ones, you kill them. Okay? And then you grow them up, and they have to, the males have to live in barracks until they're 25 years old. They can't get married until they're 30. They're all the time marching around getting ready to fight people. 
And lo and behold, they're very good at it. That's what they do. But, in it, but the idea of drama and history and philosophy and architecture and guys in navies, they, 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 this all seemed very, very, very threatening to, uh, to the Spartans. And so they said to the Spartans, look, uh, the way things are the way things are supposed to be. So after the war with the Persians, the Athenians wanted to build back their wall to protect them from invasions by people like the Spartans. Spartans tell them, no, you cannot have a wall. Because if we need to discipline you, we need to be able to march there. The Athenians disobeyed us, us, the incumbent power, and built this wall. Now, why would they build this wall? Probably because they didn't want to obey us. So then it started from there. And I think the, there's no... If you said, what's the similarities between the US and China? I think there are obviously extreme differences in both cases. But from an American perspective, the international order that we have helped build and provide and manage over seven decades has actually worked very well. If you put it in, in broad historical terms, I would give the Americans high marks in many areas. But from a Chinese perspective, that was then, and I think China has emerged to be a great power now, and things should be adjusted, and particularly in the Asian arena, they wonder, why is the US Navy the arbiter of events in the South China Sea? They look up every day and they see, here's the US Navy and it's patrolling their borders, and when there's a dispute about an island, or somebody wants to build an island, we have an opinion, and we think our opinion should dominate because we're the dominant Navy there. I tell them, Wait, we've been there ever since the Battle of Midway. We provided the environment in which things have been so calm and so peaceful that you've been able to develop as you have. Otherwise, what could have happened between you and Japan? Or what would have happened between even you and India? Otherwise. But they look and they say, uh, hmm, well maybe, I mean even in the best of cases, certainly the academic related people would say, I agree with you, yes, you have a point. But that was then, and now is now. So, Please, uh, it's time for you to leave. So we are, in that sense, Spartan. <coughs> and, yes. and China, the Athenians, it's funny though, because when you read the Peloponnesian War, you can't help feeling that the Athenians sound an awful lot like Americans. Uh, they do. The nature of the case first compelled us to advance our empire to its present height, fear being our principal motive, though honor and interest came afterward. We didn't really want this empire, but we just have it. Uh, and it's law-based. I always think the Athenians have, have a distinctly American quality to them. In that sense, the analogy is not quite uh, perfect. But We'll come back in a minute to what I think is the better analogy, which is the Germany-Britain pre-1914 analogy. Before we do that, can we talk about your cases when things turned out well? Because if there's one thing that this book can tell us, I, I, I guess, it's, it's how to avoid uh, a, a version of 1914 between the United States and, and China. You give us four examples of things turning out okay. Um, one of which is the Cold War itself, the US-Soviet yep. uh, relationship. What should we learn from those exceptions, from the minority of cases, when people, great powers, avoided the trap? So I have a chapter in the book called 12 Clues for Peace. And I try to draw both from the failures and from the successes. The four success stories, briefly, are uh, Spain versus Portugal at the end of the 15th century. Uh, the rise of the U.S. relative to Britain at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the Cold War, uh, as the U.S. met the surge of the Soviet Union, and then finally, a stretch case, but the open case of 
Germany emerging in the post-Cold War period as the dominant power in Europe. So from each of these cases, I think there's lots and lots of things to, to, uh, to learn. The two most instructive, I think, are the rise of the U.S. relative to Britain and the Cold War. In the case of the rise of the U.S. relative to Britain, the British had two problems in the sense that they had a rising Germany that was more proximate and more directly seen as a threat because the Germans were building a navy that seemed very threatening to Britain, and a rising U.S. who only wanted, us, only wanted the Brits out of our hemisphere. Now, if you, I have a, a chapter, again, most Americans will find very uncomfortable, but which I find delicious, because Teddy Roosevelt is one of my heroes. I'm a big admirer of Teddy Roosevelt. But uh, I tell the story of uh, uh, America as we're emerging into what Teddy Roosevelt was supremely confident was going to be an American century, which it was. So in 1897, a 37-year-old uh, Teddy Roosevelt arrives in Washington as the number two person in the Department of the Navy. So at the time, there was only the Secretary of the Navy, there was the Assistant Secretary, that was it. So he's the number two person. He had for 15 years been railing about the, what he called the abomination of Spain in our hemisphere, particularly in Cuba. Spain was occupying Cuba. But also the British having their navies all the time, he was seeing them, and the German Navy and others. So what happened in the decade after Teddy Roosevelt arrived in Washington? And you can read in the chapter about it, but just briefly. First, there was a mysterious explosion on a ship in Havana Harbor. Uh, we took it as an occasion to declare war against Spain. We liberated Cuba, we took Puerto Rico, we took Guam. That's how Guam became to be part of American territory. Uh, there was a, a, Teddy Roosevelt wanted a canal to connect the Atlantic and Pacific so our fleet could go back and forth. Uh, Colombia wouldn't give us the canal we wanted. We sponsored a coup, we created a new country, it's called Panama. Next day it gave us a contract for our canal. Uh, there was a territorial dispute in Venezuela. Uh, 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 in which the British and the Germans were attempting to settle the matter. Teddy Roosevelt said to him, you don't even have any right to, to any dispute, any discussion here, out, out of our hemisphere, or else we'll have a war with you. I mean, threatened war with each one of them in turn. Each of them decided better to leave. Okay? And finally, we stole the largest part of the fat tail of Alaska, uh, which is another delicious tale where John Muir, who was a belly of Teddy Roosevelt, had gone up there exploring, and had written back to him saying that a river there, the Stikine River, which is the main river, in Tongass National Forest. Tongass National Forest, look it up on the map, it's our largest national forest in the US. It's bigger than West Virginia. It's part of the territory we stole, okay? So this river, he had wrote back to him and said, this is like a hundred Yosemites. And this is the same Muir of Muir Woods, and, a guy who had taken Teddy Roosevelt camping in Yosemite, whereupon Teddy Roosevelt said, this has got to be a national park. So that's Yosemite. So Teddy Roosevelt turns to his Secretary of State and he says, uh, this is, uh, he said, 100 Yosemites, this is America. And the uh, Secretary of State said, no, sir, this is Canada. And he said, do it again. 100 Yosemites is America. So we threatened war with Canada and we took it. Okay? We didn't pay for it at all. So uh, he did, he announced the Roosevelt Corollary. Again, most people remember the Monroe Doctrine, but I don't remember the Monroe Doctrine said, this is our hemisphere, foreigners should be out of here, European foreigners. 
the Rosa Carlery said, if any nation in our hemisphere misbehaves, as we, as we decide that it's misbehaved, we will send the Marines and change the government. And every year thereafter, for the next decade, we send the Marines somewhere and change some government somewhere. So if Xi Jinping or his successor should ever be inspired by Teddy Roosevelt, then for sure we'll find ourselves on a, on a very desperate path. Because by comparison with that conduct, and the more you describe it, the more outraged I become. Wonder why we put up with it, really. Uh, exactly. By comparison with uh, this behaviour, China's been circumspect. Yes. Uh, even on issues which uh, frequently appear in the U.S. media, the South China Sea, for example, that there's nothing to compare with the kind of uh, aggressive assertion of primacy that the United States engaged in Absolutely. in the time of, of Teddy Roosevelt. And there's a, there's a, I have a wonderful quotation that uh, Neil. The, uh, from uh, his, uh, this great British uh, tradition. Uh, Lord Salisbury is the Prime Minister of Britain in 1902, and he's looking at the situation wistfully as Teddy Roosevelt has done one outrageous thing after another, not showing any respect, whatever, for Britain. And he says, uh, you know, if we had intervened in the Civil War, uh, we could have had two Americas, and this all wouldn't be happening to us. But tragically, he says, in this life, if you don't take opportunity when it arises, you don't get a second chance. But the lesson from that seems to me to be a very interesting one. The U United Kingdom decided not to intervene in the Civil War because on balance, uh, liberal opinion <coughs> in the country uh, uh, was against the Confederacy. Right. And there was that degree of cultural similarity across the Atlantic that by the 1900s, nobody really minded terribly the prospect of, uh, of US predominance and of a kind of senior partner, junior partner relationship emerging, as indeed happened in the 20th century. But that analogy doesn't apply in the case of the relationship between the United States and China. If China started to behave a la Teddy Roosevelt, uh, nobody here would simply say, oh, well, that's just China being China. Um, and it would be fine when we're the junior partners and they're the senior partners. Absolutely. Relax, let's worry about Russia. It's but not going to be like that if China becomes more assertive. I agree. And the brilliance of the British uh, accommodation uh, was that they uh, d first distinguished between what was vital for Britain. So they wanted to keep their empire, including Canada. The U.S. could have actually taken Canada. And Teddy Roosevelt was interested in uh, British Columbia. So he, he, he looked at that more than once. And the British were aware that the U.S. looked at it more than once. But they, noticing what's vital and what's just vivid, but which we can adjust to, they tolerated behavior that would otherwise be I mean, it was certainly crude and unreasonable and unfair, but nonetheless, they helped the Americans to see that American interests and British interests were actually, in terms of most important interests, quite aligned. And there was the cultural similarities that you mentioned. And then, therefore, by the time World War I comes, the U.S. is the natural supply line for Britain. Britain wouldn't have done very well in World War I, even at the beginning of the war, if it hadn't been for U.S. supplies and U.S. money for loans for the war. And then when the U.S. entered the war, it was natural that the U.S. entered as the ally with Britain. And in between the wars, U.S. and Britain became even thicker. So in the Washington Naval Conference of 1921, 
The Americans agreed even to have equal numbers of ships with the Brits, letting them feel better about it, even though the U.S. was by then, you know, half, half again bigger in terms of GDP and could have had a much, much bigger navy. And then when World War II comes, the U.S. is again naturally aligned with Britain. So the idea of taking account of where your interests are vital and then where then we can be aligned and then recognizing that in other areas we're going to have strong differences of views and then if I'm not powerful enough I can adjust. I think there's a big lesson for us there even as we think about China because it's not the cultural aff affinity for sure. I mean these are two different cultures. I have in a, have in a chapter in the book called Clash of Civilizations taking up Sam Huntington's proposition which I think is basically correct. Sam Huntington's and all I do is elaborate on it a little bit. But I think the uh, if you said do what in terms of vital interests, what interests do the U.S. and China share? In the book, I say three. One, not having a general nuclear war. We have a relationship with them like we had with the Soviet Union of mutual assured destruction. That means that if I do my best to disarm you, after that you can still kill me. So we're like, as I say in the book, Siamese twins. Imagine, again, it's a grotesque image, but imagine you wake up one day and Neil and I each still have our head and we still have our arms, but our backbone and our respiratory system has been fused. So then however mischievous I am, however evil I am, however demonic I am, however much you want to strangle me, you keep thinking, this guy deserves to be strangled, but if I strangle him, I'm going to commit suicide. That's not a good idea. So maybe I have to figure a way to live with him. So one, there's that product provides as it did and was an important part of the Cold War. Secondly, the economies are deeply interlaced, inter, uh, not just as they were between Britain and France, which were highly economically interdependent, highly, but even in supply chains. So if you had a war between the U.S. and China, Walmarts wouldn't have any goods and Chinese factories would be making stuff for whom? You know, nobody does. And we wouldn't be able to get loans, okay? so. That doesn't look like a good idea. So there's enough to build in there. Third, climate. Uh, I mean, again, not everybody in the U.S. I know agrees with the proposition, but I think everybody who studied the proposition agrees that in the current pattern of, of uh, use of energy and greenhouse gas emissions, we may succeed in making a, a globe 100 years from now that your great-great-great-grandchildren can't live in. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So there's no way the U.S. could do anything to solve that problem if China is not collaborative, and there's no way China could solve this problem if the U.S. is not. So you've got three at least big areas where you could imagine trying to find some alignment, and then you have other areas where you have to mention some adopting. So, so this, I want to open this up to the audience in just five minutes. I'm going to ask you one more question and then uh, give the... <laughs> Uh, the crowd a chance to, to ask you questions. Uh, you're almost persuading me that they're not destined for war uh, because uh, the uh, mutually assured destruction, the economic interdependence, and then these uh, environmental concerns. Uh, let's now look closely at a plausible scenario in which the United States and China could nevertheless, despite these common interests, <coughs> end up in conflict. And I, you and I chatted about this over lunch yesterday. I think we both agree that what is unfolding in North Korea has the potential to be a, a cause of conflict. Uh, give us that scenario 
maybe just looking ahead a matter of, of months, uh, nobody in the summer of 1914 expected that Britain and Germany by August would be at war over such arcane questions as Serbian self-determination, Bosnia-Herzegovina and the neutrality of Belgium. Tell me how, despite their common interests, the United States and China could end up in a conflict over North Korea. Okay, so I have a chapter in the book called uh, From Here to War, and I have five scenarios for getting there, but let's just stay with the one that I think is most urgent right now and that Neil and I were chatting about yesterday. So uh, think of a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. So in the Cuban Missile Crisis, over the course of 13 days, the US and the Soviet Union came to a point in which we almost attacked the missiles in Cuba, and if we had done, we would likely have had a general war with Russia, a Soviet Union, maybe even a nuclear war. So remember, just to, again in brief, uh, the Soviet Union was discovered placing nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba. This is October 1962. President John F. Kennedy said, this is not gonna happen, and actually, was prepared to attack the missiles in Cuba to prevent them becoming, being completed in such a way that they could attack the American homeland. And actually engaged in a confrontation that he thought had a one in three chance of nuclear war to prevent this happening. And we survived. Now it's a long story, but in any case, this happened over 13 days. In the current situation, I would say, not 13 days for sure, but the next 13 months maybe, or maybe it'll be 26 months, but then immediately ahead, the next year or two, either track one, the train's coming down, this is Kim Jong-un, he's going to acquire the ability to strike San Francisco with a nuclear warhead. That's track one. And track two is President Trump who says, my train will crash into yours before you reach that point if you continue going down your track. So you've got these two trains moving inexorably towards a point of collision. So you look and think, well, wait a minute, let me do this again. Most people who haven't been following North Korea will not quite remember. Most, most of you here probably know enough, but let me just go back through the thing. Because Secretary Perry and I, I was working for Secretary Perry in 1994 when we went through this exercise the first time. At the Defense Department, if a vote had been taken, and I was talking to Bill yesterday about this, certainly Ash Carter, who was working for him at the time, and me, who was working for him at the time, and Bill would have attacked North Korea to prevent North Korea enriching or reprocessing plutonium that would allow it, after a few more steps, to become a nuclear weapon state. Because how can you possibly live in a world in which a little, isolated, impoverished, nutty state like North Korea has nuclear weapons. We shouldn't live in such a world, and if we could prevent it, we should prevent it. Now, of course, there was great risk in attacking North Korea, even at that time. For sure, our South Korean ally would have a heart attack, as the president of South Korea said to the president of the US. And maybe this would end up triggering a response that would cause a lot of damage in South Korea. But in any case, I was in favor of it then, and I think even as I look back on it now, I believe that the Secretary of Defense's view was right. I wish we had attacked them. Then we wouldn't be where we are now. If that had provoked the Second Korean War, 
probably I would have said, well, I'm not sure I thought this was a good idea. But you know, in life, in life, you sometimes have to make very hard choices. That was a hard choice. I think I would stick with the with the with the view that I held at the time, and that was held at the Defense Department, not not by some of the rest of the government. But in any case, this same little North Korea has now an arsenal of 20 or 25 nuclear weapons. So that's not a hypothetical, that's a fact. This same North Korea has tested and deployed short-range missiles that CIA says can deliver nuclear warheads to South Korea. That's already now. This same little country has developed medium-range missiles and tested them and deployed them that the CIA says can deliver nuclear warheads against Japan. So that's, that's where we are now. And it's this train, so the train has already gone through four stations, and it's just coming to the last station, which is to be able to deliver a warhead against the American homeland. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, now we have a rival of Donald Trump. So Donald Trump heard about this for the first time in his life when he became president-elect. No, that's what he said. He said, he, he, was, he met with President Obama, he was president-elect, and President Obama said, I mean, let me tell you, there's a real crisis brewing here, it's in North Korea. North Korea is gonna acquire the ability to attack the American homeland. Now, I never heard of this in my life. This is impossible. I mean, it is, it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable thing if you haven't been studying it. I mean, go, go to the restaurant tonight and go to the next table over and say, there's a little country called North Korea that has nuclear weapons and it might be able to attack San Francisco. They won't believe you. Nobody would believe you. I mean, it's not believable, even to me. But it's a fact, okay? So in any case, Donald Trump left the meeting and within an hour tweeted, not gonna happen. This is not gonna happen. And every day since then, he said, I'm telling you, maybe Clinton let this happen, and maybe Bush let this happen, and maybe Obama let this happen, but I'm not those guys. Okay, they, they just let the thing go down the road. I'm not going to allow the USA to be threatened by nuclear weapons from Kim Jong-un. It just makes no sense. And I'll do whatever's required to prevent it. So at the Mary Lago summit between Xi Jinping and, and Trump, uh, Trump said to him, Look, you can solve this problem. But if you don't solve this problem, I can solve this problem. And if I do, you're not gonna like it. And then he served them chocolate cake for uh, dinner. <laughs> he excused himself. And he went and announced that we had launched 50 cruise missiles against Syria. Just to underline the point. How can we solve this problem? We can solve this problem. So can we launch 50 cruise missiles against North Korea? to ruin their launching pads so that they don't conduct these tests? Absolutely. The Defense Department will have no problem doing this. And they can do a lot worse than that. But the question is, if we were to do that, that's step one. Now, how about step two? So currently, the view is, well, maybe step two is that the North Koreans only use their artillery, not nuclear weapons. Maybe they only use their artillery, and they attack Seoul. Well, they may be able to kill a million people in 48 hours or so. A lot of people in Seoul. And if they do that, maybe then people cooler heads obtain and we say, time out, we should stop, you know, we're on a dangerous road. Or maybe the Americans and the South Koreans say, wait a minute, this crazy guy has already killed a million people. He's got a capacity to kill way more than that. We better destroy all the ability, all the rockets and all the missiles that he has 
now, preemptively, before he attacks us, or before he attacks South Korea, before he attacks our base, before he attacks Japan. So maybe, and if we do, will we succeed in getting all the targets? Well, I'd say every target we can identify, we can destroy. But do we, are we able to identify all the targets? Well, I probably, probably not, probably not. Again, I will be classified at this point, but I would say probably not. Well, maybe he responds by, by dropping a nuclear weapon on South Korea or Japan. Well, and then, and Colin Powell told his counterpart at one stage, if a nuclear weapon from North Korea ever explodes on the territory of an American ally, within the same hour, we're gonna turn the entire entirety of North Korea into a charcoal biscuit. Okay? So can we do that? You bet. But that's like, I don't know, 25 million people live there. Most of them poor slobs who are in a, in a prison, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a madhouse. Okay? I mean, not, they're not part of this story, so you're gonna go destroy that many targets and that many people and in what way? And then are the Chinese gonna sit by and watch this game? Because if at the end of this story you have a unified Korea, under the government that's a, a military ally of the U.S., Chinese, as you and I heard at this meeting we were, say, wait a minute, no, that's unacceptable from our perspective. We already fought a war with you over this the last time. Anybody that can't believe that Americans and Chinese can kill each other, go back and read about World War I. And, I'm sorry, about, Korean about the Korean War, excuse me, about the Korean War. In 1950, North Korea attacked South Korea, almost captured the whole country. U.S. came to the rescue, very last minute, pushed the North Koreans right back up the peninsula, whereas approaching the border with China. Out of nowhere came, I mean, MacArthur was just completely stunned, 300,000 Chinese, and they entered the war and they beat us right back down the peninsula to the 38th parallel where the, where the war had begun in the first case. So China has demonstrated that it's prepared to go to war and to fight to prevent having a hostile American-related government on its border. Now, would they do it again, particularly given these new conditions and the fact that it could escalate to hell? I don't know, and then but they would ask us, are you prepared to get involved in a war that also might escalate to hell because we both got to hell together? And I'd say, you know, stay tuned, yeah. So you've now created a, a distinctly chilly silence in the room. Uh, I want to uh, just add a, a little vignette 1950, uh, commencement at Harvard. And <coughs> a young Henry Kissinger is getting his degree. Dean Acheson does the commencement address, the one that Mark Zuckerberg gave this year. And, and Acheson, in the course of his foreign policy uh, remarks, uh, says words to the effect that a war is not about to break out. Three days later, the Korean War begins. So uh, just beware, these things can happen uh, very much faster than you expect. So as I said, you arrived here probably not thinking too much about this scenario, and you're going to leave here thinking a lot more about it. Because as Graham says, uh, there is a precedent, uh, there is a casus belli, and I can assure you, on the basis of conversations that I've had in the last few weeks, this is a very plausible scenario in the eyes of both uh, US and Chinese decision makers. The good news uh, is, uh, and I should say this because this event is sponsored but not only by 
the Center for International Security and Cooperation, but also by the Hoover Institution, to which I proudly belong. Uh, Jim Mattis, uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, is uh, on leave from being a Hoover Fellow, uh, and he has read Thucydides. You bet. And I suspect that H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, another former Hoover Fellow, has also done his reading on this. So it's not entirely in the hands of President Trump, who I'm pretty sure has not read the Peloponnesian <laughs> War. Uh, with that, I'm going to open uh, it up to questions from the floor. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand. I'm going to pick you or not. Uh, a microphone is going to come to you. You're going to uh, say who you are briefly. We don't need the whole life story. And ask a question. No speeches. If you start making a speech, I'm from Glasgow, I will just cut you off. All right? Hope that's all clear. Uh, there's a gentleman uh, right there in a blue shirt who's going to have the first question. Just tell us who you are, sir, and ask your question. Uh, my name is George Koo, and I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to have to read a book. But I have a, a metaphor to present and see what you think. The Thucydides uh, trap is based on the assumption that, like a two hands clapping. But it seems to me, uh, in the US-China case, it could only be a one hand clapping because, as you mentioned, the culture is so different. And um, I see the US making all the aggressive moves. I don't see China countering. So if it's a one hand clapping situation, are we gonna have the Thucydides trap? Okay, good, Thank you. Good, good question. An excellent question. I'll try to be, I mean, because there are a lot of questions, each question could be a long discussion, and so I apologize if I just be telegraphic. I think uh, if, if I look at the situation, I don't think the Chinese are not uh, clapping in the South China Sea. I think the Chinese believe that the South China Sea is as much their lake as Teddy Roosevelt thought the Caribbean was an American lake. Now, we can agree, or I mean, we can argue whether this makes any sense for a big and strong power to say, water on my periphery, kind of, I'm the overseer of it because I'm big and I'm strong. That's the way things are. But that, not the way things have been, but the Chinese are not happy to have the number of islands that used to be in the South China Sea. They think there should be a few extra ones, and they built them. And they're not happy to have the islands divided the way they had been. They think. The Vietnamese have claimed some islands, and the Filipinos have claimed some islands, and they think, actually, all these islands look like my islands, in the same way that Teddy Roosevelt said, I think this looks like, you know, my, 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 uh, my, my river. So I think I don't agree with the proposition that there's nobody clapping on the other side. In fairness, though, I think on the North Korean issue, at this point, uh, you're right, and the the Chinese at this point seem uh, keen to go along with the idea that the United States and China can work together to deal with the North Korean problem. Now, uh, I, I say this with, uh, with some authority having heard a very interesting conversation at a high level uh, on this subject over the weekend. So I think at this point, Trump's strategy, the Mar-a-Lago strategy of saying to China, this is your problem, you better deal with it, uh, seems to be going quite well. And I take the view that of all the things that have happened since he became president, this has been so far the most successful. The problem is, what happens if China doesn't deliver in the eyes of the administration? And at that point, Trump is going to be in a red line situation. 
uh, because at that point, he's going to have to either back down and accept the North Korean nuclear program is ongoing or take military action. Uh, and that, I think, is, is when it, it gets dangerous. And at that point, there's no knowing quite how the Chinese uh, will respond. OK, further questions. Uh, President Ilves, please. I, I'm Thomas Ilves. I'm a visiting fellow here at CSAC. Well, I just throw something else into the equation to make it worse. Uh, which is that already in Davos this year, uh, you might recall that uh, uh, President Xi was already being hailed as the the new driver of liberalism, at least economic liberalism. But certainly what we have seen after the uh, debacle at uh, the NATO summit um, and uh, the response of Angela Merkel and some other people, uh, I mean, you can already, you can sense the, you can sense Europe saying, well, we better start working with the, with the Chinese. And the Germans are already having this big powwow, economic power. At the same time, China, whether it works or not, uh, and there's indica there are indications that maybe it's not working so well, but they're making a major push toward Europe and with uh, transit and so forth. And certainly I know in the case of Eastern Europe, they've even had two separate summits with the, with the countries in the European Union and, but are formerly communist, um, with, uh, and drawing a lot of, I mean, they're, they're just, they're very big players, they have a lot of cash, and so on top of the U.S.-Chinese rivalry, I actually see that kind of the behavior towards Europe right now is going to distance Europe from the United States, uh, saying, well, if the United States is going to be like that, I mean, what, we have to do something too. And so it actually, I think, is a worse picture than simply the, the two-party conflict. So I, I, I agree. I think that you have, you have here the general Thucydides and dynamic. So I think Thucydides would say, I got the, the general picture. The rising power gets bigger and stronger. And other third parties, so the third party action is very interesting to watch in the in the case of the Peloponnesian War, other parties look to see who's, going, who's the relatively stronger power and who's rising and who's falling, and then adjust themselves because they're looking after themselves. So already across Asia, uh, countries have noticed that China is their dominant trading partner and that China is mean and is prepared to squeeze them when it feels it's in their interests. So lo and behold, they've adapted and adjusted. And you can see that right across ASEAN. And in fact, if you look at the institutions that people tried to build in Asia to counterbalance China, like ASEAN, you can see them weakening because Chinese <laughs> prefer to deal with parties one-on-one. -on -one. In the European case, again, as one looks at the picture, first you got the, what's happening to the economic balance of power. China is today the largest economy in the world measured by the single best yardstick, if you had just had to pick one, which is purchasing power parity. I have a long discussion of this in the book, and many people will disagree with it, I'm sure. Uh, but in any case, uh, CIA and IMF both believe that purchasing power parity is the best way to compare relative strengths of economies. So by that measure, China already. So who is now the biggest trading partner with Germany? China. Who is the main source of capital uh, for most places if you're looking for new capital? Germany. Who's the place that provides loans 
Now, the, the, German, the, the Chinese uh, development banks, the, the, the four of them, including AIAB, have four times the capital of the World Bank. So if you're a country and you're looking for, the, for a loan, you go to, to, to China. And, and the loans, excuse me, yes, they use the loans for political purposes, of course. And they use the loans to provide contracts. So I think you're seeing this dynamic. Then this is exacerbated. I, I was asked this, uh, I've been on this week-long rollout for this book. I mean, this is the end or the middle of, this, of the second week. Somebody's saying, well, but uh, have you found any case in which the ruling power then just basically vacates the field in, in an arena, like the climate arena, or like you have an alliance with a bunch of strong parties and you weaken that alliance? And I've not been able to find one of those. So I think, I think this case may be original in that regard. And the idea that Xi Jinping and China should be the global leader in green, you know, it's mind-blowing. I mean, this is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Yes, indeed, they did reach at Paris an accord, a very important accord, I think, at least in the recognition of the problem. And yes, they're investing money in building green industries, but they are the biggest emitter. The idea that China is the champion of liberal trade, again, it's breathtaking as an idea. China is the most uh, mercantilist, protectionist uh, economy, I think, uh, you know, of any big, big economy. Uh, so how can you manage that? Well, if, if the contender leaves the field, I guess, you know, I'm the only, only guy left standing. Yeah. This illustrates really well the importance of the other players. Um, although it's very tempting, if you, especially if you've studied the Cold War at length, <coughs> to lapse into a kind of two-player game framework. Um, what Thucydides shows is that really it's the, uh, it's the alliances and the relationships with the lesser powers that are right. crucial in the origins of the Peloponnesian War. Corinth, how is Corinth going to play it? And I think in exactly the same way your book shows that what really matters here is not just how China and the United States relate to one another, but how others will respond to that. And I think it's already clear that key American allies are nervous as can be, specifically on the issue of how the United States is going to handle North Korea, the South Koreans, for example, are far from uh, comfortable with yeah. the direction that things I, are going. I, I would predict that the American-South Korean relationship will become very stressed over the months ahead because, I mean, the reality of the situation, and you almost wouldn't like to say this out loud, but Lindsey Graham went on television and made this uh, speech about it, so it's not like it, and strategically you can look and see the situation. The Trump's proposition is that in order to prevent North Korea from being able to do to San Francisco what North Korea has already been allowed to be able to do to Seoul or to Tokyo, we are prepared to take a course of action that's likely to cause a war in your country. So I think President Moon is looking at this and thinking, where is the biggest threat to me in the short run? And how do I feel about this? And I think we're going to actually, in the Japanese relationship, it'll be interesting to watch too. I haven't 
looked at that carefully lately, but I think in the South Korean relationship, I think this is going to become very stressful. And we haven't even mentioned Russia. Uh, yes, it's going to be a fascinating discussion. We have 25 minutes. That means we're going to try and get about five questions, maybe more. Um, let me just see. I don't want to be biased against any part of the room. Uh, so I'll go to right to the back on the other side of the gentleman in the blue shirt there. Yes, yes, sir, you, sir. Right at the back. David, just, just grab that microphone. Hey, David Mulford, grab how are that, you? How are you? Uh, other countries, could you put Japan and especially India into this picture, please? Japan so, and India, David. Yes, uh, uh, again, I'll just try to be very, very quick. I would say in the case of Japan, Japan's the third largest economy in the world. Japan has a serious defense establishment. Uh, if you were to have a naval war uh, just between the two parties in the East China Sea, between Japan and China today, with the balance of forces, I would bet on Japan. Okay, but it was just a, a sea encounter. That that won't continue. But over time, uh, currently, and the U.S.-Japan uh, mutual defense treaty is a very strong treaty. So, I would say Japan is a big player, and one of China's problems, and one of the reasons why it's different than in the case of the emergence of the U.S., is that there are strong and powerful other, you know, actors in the region. But as Neil said, what this will end up doing if, if the Athenian uh, Spartan case is, is, the, is, the, is the touchstone, is that the relationships with these allies will evolve and adapt and adjust. And the entanglements with the allies can often end up becoming the reason why one thing leads to the other and the two parties end up somewhere they don't want. India, I think, is a wild card. India, I mean, I, I'm probably prejudiced about India because I'm too much influenced by Lee Kuan Yew. So uh, in my book on Lee Kuan Yew, we have a great chapter on the future of India. It's a terrific book. This is not this book, a previous book, the one with Blackwell, where it's a great book because 90% of the words in there are Lee Kuan Yew's words. So we just do the questions. He does the answers. So this is with my colleague Bob Blackwell, a former uh, ambassador to India, who's a uh, I call him Swami Blackwell down. So he's very attached. So I, with malice of forethought, I asked this question to Lee Kuan Yew. I said, you know, many people say India is going to overtake China. What do you think? And he says, young man, do not use India and China in the same sentence. He says, that's how I thought, okay. Then he said, and this is when Blackwell almost fell off of his chair. He said, India is not a real country. He said, instead, it's 24. Uh, principalities uh, that happen just to be united by the British rail line. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm not betting on India, yes. I'll take the other side of that bet. Uh, ten years ago I predicted that, that the, uh, it was the tortoise and the hare, uh, and as in the fable, uh, the tortoise would overtake the hare, and growth, in gro growth rate terms that, that has happened. I think India is fascinating in a number of respects in this context because it's not quite clear uh, how, to, how it's going to play the, the US-China uh, rivalry. Uh, the, there was, and I think this is part of Bob Blackwell's mm -hmm. strategy, yeah. an idea back in the time of the Bush administration that India could become a really solid uh, ally of the United States in a kind of quasi-containment strategy. Right. Um, and that hasn't really worked out. Well, as Bob, as Bob says, if you want to clear a clearer room of Indians, say the word containment. Yeah. So basically, the Indians want to play their hand. And the other thing, you know, if you read the chapter on the rise of, of, uh, of China, uh, every two years since the great financial crisis, and this is a fact, 
Every two years, the increment of growth in China has been equal to the total GDP of India. So just to put it in perspective. Let's take some more questions. Um, now let's see. There's a I'm determined to get gender balance in this discussion, so I'm going to go to the lady who's sitting in the second row there. Hi, um, I'm Unso. I'm a historian, uh, doctoral student in the history department okay, here. Um, and uh, my question is, I'm interested to know your thoughts on um, contextualizing in a longer history of China, where we view uh, China as perceiving itself as the original uh, primary power until its downfall in the, in the mid-19th century. And that, uh, and so I wanted your thoughts on this. Thank That's a great question. So uh, long before Donald Trump became famous with his slogan, make America great again, Xi Jinping became president of China. And his slogan in colloquial is make China great again. It's called the great rejuvenation of the great Chinese people and contextualizing it just as you say. From Chinese perspective and Chinese narrative, and all Chinese will tell you this story, China was great forever, for 5,000 years. China was the dominant power in the world, they think, for 5,000 years. They just, their world only included the area that they could see, but still. Uh, uh, and then there was this 200 years of anomaly in which Westerners came and exploited them and imperialized them and, uh, and invaded them and fought wars with them and dominated them. But now that's over. We're getting big and strong again ourselves. Back to our just normal place. And our normal place in the Chinese narrative is at the top of the universe. So China's sense of international order is a hierarchical dominance in which China is at the top of the pyramid and everybody else is a, 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 a somewhere lower in the pyramid. And uh, the, the principal injunction in Confucian terms is know thy place. So thy place is not China's place. China's place is at the top and other people are adapted or adjusted from that point. So I think as they look and see what's happening and as Xi Jinping talks to, you know, talks to people that, that work with him, he says, we're just basically restoring, we're, we're not rising. They even say, we're not rising, we're just restoring our, our, ourselves to where we were before and we would have been otherwise. I point out to them that, wait a minute, you were, you were big only, you had a big GDP only because you had a lot of people. They were all miserably poor, like everybody else in the world, to the Industrial Revolution. I mean, as Neil's book points out, until the Industrial Revolution and per capita income began to grow, everybody was miserably poor. So if you have a lot of miserable poor people, you know, yeah, okay, you have a bigger GDP, but therefore, so what, okay? They didn't have, the, they didn't have Industrial Revolution, they didn't have technology, they didn't have a market economy. So basically, they've now imported what's basically the march of civilization, but still for the purpose, as you say, of restoring China to where it ought to be, at the top of the, at the, top of the pyramid. One of the things that's fascinating about this, and I, I like this question very much, is the way in which historical narratives become a part of the way in which strategic questions are framed. And it's absolutely true that there is this story, which has been, of course, reinforced by some Western historians, uh, that the period from the 1840s to the 1940s is this an anomalous century, right. and that we're really reverting to a kind of norm. This is a kind of Ken Pomerantz 
story. So uh, the American narrative, of, of course, is a completely different one, uh, and it's still fundamentally one in which there's uh, a providential exceptionalism to the United States. I've just been right. reading uh, Arno Westad's New History of the Cold War, which is not yet oh, out. Uh, Arno, whom I think I managed to sure. help lure to you Harvard. Did, you did. This Thank is one goodness. of the arguments he, he makes, that the American sense of exceptionalism is the kind of ideological component. That's the narrative on the American side, and that's still very much intact, uh, even in a slogan like Make America Great Absolutely. Again. Let's get some more questions in before we're out of time. Um, I'm going to go right to the back, and there's a young man there with uh, sandy-colored hair. Yes, you, sir. If you could just get a microphone. Hi, thanks very much. Uh, my name is Leo. I'm an uh, international policy uh, master's student. Um, I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are about whether the, uh, the actions of, of, of Donald Trump in, in seemingly voluntarily pulling away from the international order makes you more or less sanguine about the, the prospects of conflict between the US and China. Um, and just briefly more, yes. Uh, so I think that, the, as I mentioned before, I think the idea that uh, the uh, ruling power trying to maintain some level of order in which the rising power would, to which the rising power would adapt and adjust, because obviously the rate of adjustment or the types of adjustment depend on the underlying correlation of forces. So my strength, if I'm the ruling power, can be enhanced by my relationships with other strong powers and by other powers' respect for what we're trying to accomplish together. So if the ruling power retreats from various domains, uh, it's not surprising, that, not surprising that Xi Jinping at Davos you know, uh, uh, lavished the spotlight as when people say, great leader, you're uh, leading our global uh, financial liberalization and economic, he thinks that's fantastic. And Chinese like being respected uh, as, as they become more and I think in the climate space, I would expect we will be doing the very same thing. Can I just appeal to those people who haven't yet muted their phones to do it? Um, you know, we, we're really trying our best to carry on this conversation without jingles interrupting us. Um, let, let me go over to this side of the room. And uh, there's a gentleman in a red shirt just on the edge there. Yes. Hi, I'm Isaac. I'm a freshman here. Um, oh, I, was I was wondering if you could talk about so for the past 70 years, we've seen what an American-led international order looks like. What would a Chinese-led international order look like? Uh, okay, that's a great question, and I can't give a good answer, but I think it's one worth contemplating. Uh, I think, uh, again, I'm a red-blooded, even red-necked American, so I, I come from North Carolina, and I can't imagine, I mean, I know that somewhere, either in the Bible or in the Constitution or in some authoritative document, it says USA means number one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I, I have, and I have no, no doubts who the good guys are. So I mean, I don't believe in moral equivalence. I think we're the good guys and other guys I have doubts about. So, it's amazing you lasted so long at Harvard, exactly. really, Graham, with, view, yeah. with view, exactly. views like that. Well, I, I put my shirt up from time to time <laughs> so that people don't don't quite notice. But it's that interesting, I, isn't it, that the, the reason that's a hard question to answer is that the Chinese generally do not articulate a vision of what that would look like. On the contrary, the standard line is 
We are far too preoccupied with our domestic problems to even think of such questions. Uh, and so there's a, a quite deliberate avoidance of the scenario uh, that you're alluding to, even as a whole series of Chinese projects go forward that are clearly designed to expand China's influence. The Belt and Road or One Belt, One Road project is a, an example of this large-scale Chinese investment in a whole bunch of uh, of, of foreign countries, almost global in its scope. Graham mentioned the financial innovation that's going on. Uh, so the fascinating thing for me about China's uh, rise is that it continues to be relatively quiet and, and understated. And here the, the analogy with Wilhelmine Germany, with pre-1914 Germany, breaks down because the Germans are always insisting that they, at least their leadership was uh, constantly insisting that they were entitled to be a world power. And, uh, and it was this stridence of, stridency of, of German rhetoric that probably contributed to what Paul Kennedy called the rise of the Anglo-German antagonism. The Chinese are very interesting in this respect. They learn from history. Now, one reason that Graham and I got interested in applied history is that we began to suspect we were living in the United States of amnesia, uh, where there is no <coughs> attempt for me to inculcate historical knowledge in uh, senior officials of the US government. This is not new. It's been going on for many years. Kissinger complained about it in the 1960s. But when you go to Beijing and you talk to senior officials there, you realize that they systematically study history, that the Standing Committee of the Politburo has reading assignments from Wang Qishan. Uh, I'll bet your book is the latest one. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'm prepared to bet it's already being read. Graham, can you confirm or deny that it's already being read by members of the Chinese government? So I can tell an anecdote. So I was at dinner in New York last night, last week as part of this rollout, and a, a, a high-level financial person had just come back from this One Belt, One Road uh, uh, event that the Xi Jinping held in China, and they said uh, that Wang Qishan had got him on the side and said, uh, uh, what do you think of this Thucydides trap book? And, uh, and he said, uh, it's not published until next week in, in the US. And Wang Qishan said, well, uh, I read my copy last week and it's fantastic, but I want to ask you about this or that. So there's a Mandarin edition already circulating there, not, not, with, not with copyright. Yeah. And this, well, not necessarily. They may be reading the galleys, which have been widely circulated, and they may even be reading it in English. In some cases, this is an amazing and illustrious list that you're joining. Um, I first heard of Wang Qishan's reading list when I discovered that everybody on the standing committee had been asked to read Tocqueville's Old Regime and the Revolution. Oh, yeah. uh, then it turned out that there was a book at the height of the European financial crisis. They were all reading a short history of, of Europe. So this is the list to be on. It's not, it's not what Mark Zuckerberg is reading that matters. It is undoubtedly what Wang Qishan is reading. Let's get a couple more questions in before we're uh, right out of time. Um, I'm going to carry on pursuing gender balance. There's a, a, a lady right in the middle of the middle block there. If you can pass the microphone to her, I'd be really grateful. Yes, please. Oh, thank you. I'm interested in, since we're talking about war, uh, between China and America, the time frame. Because there was a study by, uh, commissioned by the US Army of Rand Corporation, and it says, the, the title is Thinking Through the Unthinkable. It seems that 
since there is a great discrepancy still between the uh, military capacities of US and China. So an uh, earlier war, let's say, you know, within the 10 years, which is from 2015 to 2025, will be an advantage to America that could maybe wage a war and the war would be taking place on China and strike China so hard that would set back China's development for another 50 years or so, rather than waiting to 2015. I wonder if you can comment on this question of time frame. So maybe when China really caught up with America in terms of military capacity, there might be less chances of war between China and America. Okay, good, very good question. So there is an excellent RAND study that I cite uh, uh, in trying to do the military balance between the U.S. and China. And there's no question, I mean, the U.S. Defense Department spends more than the next five competitors combined. So the U.S. has invested in defense in a big way for a long time and is clearly uh, strongly superior to China in almost every domain. But if you look at the, at the events, for example, a naval war in the region, this becomes a very different picture. And that's what the RAND study points out, that basically, since the Chinese can play from the land and the Americans have to play from the sea, as well as from the bases in the region, including in South Korea or in Japan or in Guam, uh, if I have to operate my carrier, for example, in the South China Sea, and all you have to do is build missiles on the land in China, million-dollar missiles can de destroy billion-dollar carriers. So that's not, a, that's not a good game. The Chinese, don't they're not required to play symmetrically, so they can play asymmetrically. So that's the big point about that study. The other point, though, with respect to the thesis here, so the thesis is not that because I'm bigger and stronger than you are and I see you rising, I think it's a good time to go to war with you. In almost none of my cases does somebody decide, this is a good idea, let's go to war. War that the, the, the rising power thinks, all right, now I'm big and strong enough, I think I'll go to war with you. Again, that would be, there's a couple of cases like that, but that's a, a big exception. Most of the cases, and the most worrisome cases, are we're uh, uh, in this structural dynamic that Thucydides described, and third-party actions, not our actions, some other event, some other place, ends up having an impact on this interaction. So in the North Korean case, we're not, I, mean, if I believe, and I agree 100% with what Neil said, if Xi Jinping could say to uh, Kim Jong-un, do this, do that, and he would do it, he would say it. He's told them. The relationship between Beijing and Pyongyang is very stressed. Never has they, have the Chinese been willing to uh, accept uh, Kim Jong-un to come and visit. Even the premier has never gone to visit there. I talked to a Chinese colleague just recently. I said, well, how do you talk to this guy? They said, well, our ambassador can't even go see him. The ambassador in, uh, in Pyongyang. They said, well, we can talk to the ambassador, his ambassador to, Be to Beijing, and he has at least some ability to communicate messages. This is a very stressed relationship. So here a third party could take an action, though, that, as we were describing before, that could end up in this cascade. So I think, it, I'm not, I'm, I think the military balance is very relevant, but I think the, 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 the vulnerability to war 
is more a function of these entanglements with the third parties than it is with whether I'm just a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker. A phrase I've heard recently from uh, Chinese officials relating to the original Korean War uh, is that China and the United States were dragged into war in Korea. And I've heard that phrase often enough to think that it's become a certain, uh, has a certain official status. Of course, the reality is that China became involved in the Korean War because uh, Stalin told Mao to do it. And uh, uh, when you tell that story, <coughs> I gave a lecture on the Korean War at Tsinghua, you realize that you're entering a very, very fraught terrain because you have to acknowledge that the founder of the People's Republic was made a fool of uh, by Stalin uh, yeah. and turned into a proxy for Soviet policy in 1950-51. Absolutely. Uh, we have time, I think, for one more question, Graham, and then we're going to, to wrap it up. I'm going to just allow uh, one of our senior uh, faculty members to ask the last question. I managed to get a freshman in. I'm very pleased that I did that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that a freshman came. Yeah. Freshman, but one of my students, so that's, oh, okay. that's good, too. Not surprising. Uh, you don't, don't tell me you ordered him to come. Uh, Scott Sagan from CSAC in the Political Science Department. Um, Graham, like you, I was really worried when Donald Trump said this is not going to happen, because that puts you into a, a red line, a commitment trap problem. And yet, Donald Trump is remarkably inconsistent. He could back down on the torture issue. He could say NATO was obsolete, and now it's not obsolete. He could say, I want to go to Kim Jong-un and talk to him. Right. So should we be as worried about red lines? On the one hand, this is a person who can be vindictive. On the other hand, it's a person who is stunningly inconsistent. That's a bit like Kaiser William II, actually. <laughs> oh, my God. Not, not a particularly reassuring thought, is it? I, I mean, I was about to be... I think it's nice to end on an up note, and I <laughs> appreciate Scott's uh, optimism. I think uh, certainly given the nature of the campaign in which China was demonized as the source of every problem, uh, the new... A flip-flop is, I think, pref preferable, okay? uh, though it's clearly one in which there's no set strategy or no notion that there's necessarily continuity in this. As one of the Chinese that had been involved in the Mary Lago summit said, you know, they were thrilled to be th that they got through it and things turned out as well as they did, and then he said, but we know we're just one tweet away from you know, <laughs> off in some other direction. So the, the notion of whether this is a consistent thrust that was likely to be continued or not, you rightly say there's a lot of uncertainty about. I think the, in trying to, 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 to decipher though, and I, I would wish therefore that, okay, uh, there's, a, there's a very strong national security team. So H.R. McMaster is a great national security advisor. Mattis is a great secretary of defense. Tillerson, I think, is going to be a very strong secretary of state. So there's a big team there of serious people. And they are going to think through the consequences before one just takes an action. At the same time, if, I mean, if you ask most San Franciscans or most people in Palo Alto, how do you feel about Kim Jong-un being able to launch a nuclear weapon against San Francisco? I'm telling you, I mean, go to ask somebody at the restaurant or, you know, even on the campus, and they'll say, what? You know, I mean, who? How? No. Okay, no, absolutely not. And if you say, well, what chance, what risk would you be prepared to 
take to prevent that. They said, well, I don't want to take any risks. I just don't want it to happen. You know, so they don't want to be consistent about it. So I, I think it's, it's quite possible this is a visceral uh, sense that he has, that I have, to, I have to stand for something, and I stand for a great America that's strong, and it's not going to allow a little country like that to do this. And if you, uh, China, don't solve this problem, I told you, I am going to solve this problem. So I, I, I would not discount the proposition that if the train, con if the Kim Jong-un train continues down the track, we will see uh, uh, not just a credible threat to attack, but that we'll see an attack. Uh, and then we'll have to see where that leads. And if you, Scott, have, as I have studied the Cuban Missile Crisis, when you look at it in retrospect and you think, wait a minute, would you run a one in three chance of a nuclear war with the Soviet Union to prevent them having nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba? Excuse me, they already have nuclear-tipped missiles in Russia, the Soviet Union, they could kill you. So they can kill you 20 minutes earlier. Boy, that's a big deal that you're going to run a one in three. This makes no sense. And actually, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, once uh, Jack Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy began to to sense this, they had the feeling, what the hell are we doing? How did we get into this situation? And that's why they became so inventive at the end. So I'm hoping, I mean, my, if I end on a sort of positive note, I'm hoping that as, as, the, as this national security team works their way through this problem and sees, my God, down this path, we could find ourselves actually in a war with China. And if that happened, we're all gonna go to hell, and that's crazy will become inventive. And I think if they became inventive, if the US and China were working together, there's more than one solution to this problem. Yeah. With that, I think I'm going to give Amy Seagart the last word. Right. But thank you, Graham. Well, I think I speak for everybody when I say, never has it been so enjoyable to talk about so much doom. <laughs> Destined for war is destined for purchase on the tables outside, right outside the doors. Please join me once again in thanking Neil and Graham. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.